now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, today we'll come to our final description of the church, and uh, this one, I think, gives us uh, probably the greatest hope. Along with being members of a body, along with being uh, uh, brothers and sisters in a family, along with being stones in a building, uh, we are also citizens in Christ's kingdom. It's a kingdom that hasn't yet been fully revealed, but it's full of hope, it's full of promise, and it's absolutely certain because it has been promised. It's part of the inheritance that we have as believing children of God. And the Holy Spirit residing in us is the guarantee, it's the down payment of the promise that we'll, we will be with Jesus in his kingdom forever and ever. Now we know it's not in the here and now, but it is both future and spiritually and a heavenly kingdom, and we know this because of the fact of the actual words of Christ right before he was crucified. Turn with me, please, to John 18. John 18, you remember that Jesus was arrested, and then he was put on trial against uh, with the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas was the one who was overseeing the trial, and after Caiaphas examined him, they brought him to the governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, and Pilate didn't want to deal with this particular issue because he said, this is just an issue related to your traditions, to your laws, to your customs. You deal with it. And they came back and said, well, we can't, we don't have the authority. We don't have the power to put him to death. So we need you to step in and interrogate him. So as he's interrogating him, trying to discern whether the accusations about him are true or false, Jesus makes a special point to declare that his kingdom is not of this world. Notice verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now that's significant. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He rather came to establish a heavenly one. And the old spiritual I've quoted here on a number of occasions reflects this thought that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Now, I thought what Calvin had said about this passage was so clear and so good that I actually put it in your bulletin, uh, written well over 400 years ago, but as practical today as the day it was written, and I put it there so you could follow along. I, in, in relation to his commentary here in this passage, my kingdom is not of this world, he writes. This defense was made by Christ before Pilate. But the same doctrine is useful to believers to the end of the world. For if the kingdom of Christ were earthly, it would be frail and changeable, because the fashion of this world passeth away. 
But now, since it is pronounced to be heavenly, this assures us, us of its perpetuity. Thus, should it happen that the whole world were overturned, provided that our consciences are always directed to the kingdom of Christ, they will nevertheless remain firm, not only amidst shakings and convulsions, but even amidst dreadful ruin and destruction. We are cruelly treated by wicked men. Still, our salvation is secured by innumerable storms by which the world is continually agitated. The kingdom of Christ in which we ought to seek tranquility is separated from the world. The kingdom of God which it dwells in us while it dwells in us is a stranger to the world because its conditions is totally different. You see, the world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And regardless of what takes place, whether it's overturned, whether it begins to shake, go into convulsions, leading to dreadful ruin and destruction, and even if we're treated cruelly by wicked men, our salvation is secured by the kingdom of Christ. The world will continually be agitated by innumerable storms, and yet we seek Christ, his kingdom, and we're strangers in the world that is not our home. We're just a passing through. I think this is seen even more clearly as we go back to what I read from 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter 2, I'm just going to mention four things that are right from our text. Uh, Peter tells us in this kingdom we have a new identity. We have a new identity. Secondly, we have a, a new citizenship. Uh, thirdly, we have a new proclamation. And then fourth, we're to bring others into the kingdom. So those are the four things I'll camp on. One, our new identity. Two, our new citizenship. Three, our new proclamation. And four, bringing others into the kingdom. And he starts with identity, doesn't he? He says, in, he says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Now, let me begin by saying that each of these statements are statements about the nation of Israel declared in the Old Testament. And yet Peter is not using these statements to say that the church replaces Israel. Rather, he's saying that there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. We are all a people of God's own possession. And in a sense, what he's doing is bringing all believers from every time period together into one great community of believers. Remember, true Israel was not because of their family lineage or their bloodline. True Israel is believing Israel. And to be in the true church isn't simply because you've attended this morning or simply because your parents are Christians. True being in the true church, you also must be a genuine believer. So those who are believing in the Messiah to come we're part of this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And all those who are believing in Christ after he died are one and the same. So we too, Peter states, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of God's own possession. And certainly verse 10 summarizes that, doesn't it? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, when you become part of his kingdom, you do have a new identity, don't you? Uh, 
whether it's Abraham being called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, whether it's the nation of Israel being called out of Egypt, or, or you being called out of your unbelief and darkness, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Peter wants us to see that there's only one kingdom of believers from Genesis to Revelation or from creation to the end of the age. But it's more than just uniting the Old and the New Testament. It also unites current believers living in the same time period. We who follow Christ, who have trusted Christ, have believed that we're redeemed and have received forgiveness through his death, burial, and resurrection. We believe because we are part of that chosen race. We know that those who believe in Christ are chosen before the foundation of the world. We know that we are predestined according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We, we know that because we are dead in our sins, because there's none righteous, no, not one, that we would never choose Christ. We know that we love him because he first loved us. He's the author of our faith. So by God's divine decree, we are part of this chosen race. And the word race literally means a large group of persons regarded as biologically related. And we know this is true because we learned last week about the miracle of adoption. See, we who are committed followers of Christ have been adopted into God's family, which includes all believers before Christ, those in the past, all believers after Christ, which of course includes all current believers from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every people group, all those in the present. We are all a chosen race. And now that we're in his family, now that we've experienced a new birth, now that we are truly his sons and his daughters, we are all, no matter who we used to be biologically related to, or we still are physically, so to speak, we are now related to one another, and we have one singular father. So we are one race, no matter what nationality, no matter what color, no matter what previous identity. We are now all of one same race, which makes racism and bigotry in the church just sickening, doesn't it? See, I expect that in the world around us. We expect people to hate one another. We expect people to have superior attitudes toward one another. But when we hear of believers who, who treat other believers, or not other believers, but we hear of believers treating others of a different race or ethnicity as less than, uh, then it's just sinful or wrong. I have any raised, as you know, in the great state of California. And just because of God's common grace, I was really raised in, in an ethnic melting pot. Just even in elementary school, uh, my friends were Chinese and white and Mexican and black. And, and in my own upbringing, my, my grandfather was half Indian and he was half white. So he wasn't accepted in the white schools and heavy white friends. And he wasn't accepted in Indian schools and he had no Indian friends. And it certainly shaped his thinking. And that trickled down to his eight children and possibly to some of the grandkids. But when I got to school in Virginia, 
It was an eye-opener. I, I was shocked at the racial divide. I was shocked at the hatred and the bigotry. Not, not in Lynchburg. I expected it there, but rather on the Christian college campus among people who profess to be believers. I mean, heaven will have people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. And because of Christ, we not only will be all one nation, we are one nation now. At least we should be. Heaven, you can say, will be colorblind. And so the church should be too. I mean, part of the reason God's a missionary God, part of the reason why the church is called to go and preach to every nation, part of the reason why God has actually spreads Christians abroad and sends them out. Part of the reason for the early church was persecuted so they would scatter is so the church would go to the uttermost parts of the earth and continue to bring more and more people into his kingdom to build his nation. Beloved, it's Christ and Christ alone that shatters ethnic lines and lines of color and nationality. The government can't do it. Nobody can do it. It's Christ and him alone that brings groups who previously hated one another into unity and harmony. Because when you become a part of his blood-bought family and kingdom, you're immediately part of this great company of believers. And salvation humbles you. Moves all thoughts of superiority, if you have them. It moves you to consider others as more important than yourself. And it leaves no room for snobbishness and bigotry. In areas of the country where there's more ethnic diversity than here in Gladwin County, it's, it's just a blessing when you happen to visit a church that resembles heaven. Yeah, as the children's Sunday school song, when the red and yellow and black and white who are precious in his sight uh, come together to worship on earth uh, before we actually worship together in heaven. When you worship with that multitude, it's a chosen race giving glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving to the one who sits on the throne. See, part of our new identity in the heavenly kingdom is that we are one chosen race. But secondly, we're a royal priesthood, meaning we're both kings and God's kingdoms and priests who have access to him. It was Luther who was the biggest proponent of the priesthood of the believer. After witnessing the corrupt Catholic Church communicate that the only ones who can come to God or come before God or hear from God or really know God and do any true work for God were the clergy or the priest. Luther used the word of God to correct the error. He said over and over, it's not the clothes that make you a priest. It's not the clothes, it's not the collar that make you a priest. Rather, it's being called from darkness to light. It's your conversion, he would say, that made you a priest. In fact, he, he felt like believers should use the word priest as freely as they use the word, use the word Christian. So if you're at the, at the fellowship luncheon uh, today after the service, and you happen to sit next to one, someone that you don't know very well, which I encourage you to do, is a great opportunity to get to know someone, and you ask them, Are you, how long have you been a Christian? Luther would say, it's just as right to say, how long have you been a priest? We should try that when we're downstairs today. Well, how long have you been a priest? He looked at those two terms as so connected to Christianity that they were identical. 
priesthood. Our priesthood comes through Jesus being our great high priest. In the Old Testament, it was the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies once a year to make an atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. And it was through the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs that his sins and the sins of the nation were atoned for. But it had to be done through the high priest, and it had to be done annually. Of course, Jesus, on the other hand, according to Hebrews 7, was a high priest who was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Since our great high priest Jesus lived a holy life, a perfect life, and offered himself once for sin, we can now function as priests who have constant access to God through Jesus without ever going through a human mediator. What Luther emphasized was, as citizens of God's kingdom, as priests, we all have direct access to God the Father, not the guy with the collar. You see, we all have the Holy Spirit in us, who can teach us his word. And all the work that we do, no matter if it's preaching, or cutting the grass, or doing the laundry, or teaching a math class, or working in a factory, all work is to be done to and for his glory. All work is God-honoring, not just the work of the priest or those in the ministry. Tremendous blessing to the body of Christ. Our access to God, our relationship to God, our coming before God is not contingent on anything except the precious blood of Christ, which we sang about earlier, because he's the Lamb of God. We're washed in his blood and have permanent access to the Father because of him privilege of being in his kingdom, the privilege we have to come boldly before his throne, our new identity. Now thirdly, our new identity is that we are also part of a holy nation. Now of course our holiness is obviously not our own. Remember when we trust Christ to save us, we become positionally righteous in his sight. He does see us and accept us because the righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. That's what justification is. We are declared righteous, not because we are, but we have the righteousness of another. The righteousness of Christ imputed or placed upon us. And for the rest of our Christian life, we are commanded to become practically what we are positionally. We're to grow in sanctification and holiness. But don't miss the word nation. Not only are those in the kingdom of Christ, one race. We also are one nation. Your calling from darkness to light, from death to life, from being under the dominion of darkness and being transformed into the kingdom of God's beloved son means you're, you're no longer a citizen of the United States or Canada or Mexico or Sierra Leone or Ukraine or Russia or Haiti. You now belong to a heavenly nation where Jesus is king. And Paul declares in Philippians 3, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this alone should be a game changer in how we live our lives 
how we view our politics, how we view the culture, and, and how we view all that we do in terms of how concerned we are over the earthly things around us. Because the moment you became a Christian, your citizenship changed because you're now a citizen of heaven. See, now you will receive a warm welcome from other believing Christians who have a heavenly citizenship like you, but a not-so-warm welcome from U.S. citizens who do not have a heavenly citizenship, who do not know Christ. And as citizens of heaven, the biblical record leans far more in the direction of doing all that we can to bring others into the kingdom of Christ than trying to labor to fix the nation we are no longer a citizen of. See, as you read through the book of Acts and the early church, they weren't trying to make cultural changes so that, the, so that Israel was more sensitive to Christians. Rather, they did all they could to bring more individuals out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ. They, they weren't out about to make Israel great again. They, they, they were... The Gentile Christians weren't trying to make Rome great again. Well, why would they? they? They weren't residents of those countries any longer. They had a singular focus that was to make Jesus great and bring as many people as possible into his kingdom. And they fulfilled the Great Commission by going about preaching and making disciples and teaching and baptizing. And the cultural changes took place as the holy nation grew as men and women came to Christ. Which brings us to our second point. Since we're in a nation that's different than the one we're born into, Peter has a very unique description of us, doesn't he? Because our citizenship is in heaven, because we're a people of God's own possession. Peter calls us, in verse 11, what? Sojourners and exiles. These words are very similar in their meaning. They, they mean to live as a foreigner. It's a person who, for a a period of time, lives in a place which is not his normal residence. It means alien, stranger, temporary resident. One commentator writes, Our true homeland is heaven, and any earthly residence, therefore, temporary. Yet we're chosen sojourners, ones whom the king of the universe has chosen to be his own people, to benefit from his protection and to inhabit his heavenly kingdom and since we inhabit his heavenly kingdom we're now foreigners here in the united states we are aliens here in glavin county we're temporary residents here in the state of michigan so so why do we get so worried about getting our guy in office so why do we get so worried about the guy who's in office so why do we get so worried about who's in the Supreme Court? Why do we get so wound up about getting our laws on the books? Why send so much time worried about railing against and mocking the left? The, the, the church has been fighting this since the 70s. When Jerry Falwell started Moral Majority, from that time the church attempted to use this political influence through the strategy of getting the right people in place, in power, and it just hasn't worked. We, we've had the right guys in office. 
We've had the right Supreme Court justices for a time. And we all know that America is more pagan today than it ever was before. So why are we so worried about hanging on to our rights? Because we don't have any rights here in the United States because we're citizens of another country. We don't expect the world to be friendly and accommodating to us because they weren't friendly and accommodating to our king. Didn't Jesus tell us that they persecuted me? They'll persecute you? I mean, should we expect any less? We belong to God. The world is not our home. We're just uh, passing through. And our Savior set the example, didn't he? He emptied himself by denying himself, humbling himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Isn't the Christian life a life of constant denial of our rights? I'm not the least bit concerned who's prime minister of Canada or England, who the next leader of Saudi Arabia is. I'm not a citizen of those countries. But I am concerned about the heavenly country I belong to. I actually had the privilege of being a foreigner in Mexico, in Ethiopia, and in Kenya. And if you've never had a chance to travel outside our country, you do, you do, <laughs> you do feel very out of place when you're in a country that you weren't born into or that you're not a citizen of. They, they do things completely different in those countries that are so foreign to me. And you take things for granted. I was in the airport of Addis Ababa. When you come in to, to drive into the airport, they have army guys with guns that make sure that if you don't have a passport, you don't have a ticket, you're not even going to get in the building. You're not going to kiss your fiance goodbye at the gate. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> Stop. You're not going any further than here, number one. So you're already at full alert. Well, I wanted to take as many pictures as I could because I was in a place I'd never been to. I want to share them with my wife and my friends and so I started taking some pictures because there was a bunch of military equipment on the tarmac. And I thought, oh, look at all that. So I started snapping pictures of, those, of these Jeeps and these trucks and stuff. And some person came up to me. I think she was from South Africa. She goes, don't take any pictures. They'll haul you away and interrogate you as a spy. I was so glad she told me. I deleted all my pictures as fast as I could. I was a stranger. I was a foreigner. I was an exile. I wasn't a citizen of their country and didn't know their customs. But I had to follow their rules, even though I thought they were silly. I mean, really, I was just taking a picture of a couple army trucks. So the sojourner, is it right for me to decide which rules I follow and which ones I think are silly? Or because I'm a guest or a temporary resident in the country I'm in and I represent King Jesus, do I do all I can to promote him by being a good and upright guest and follow their guidelines? Now, I, I know that we live in the United States. I know that it's okay to have pride in your country. I'm not going to the extreme there. You meet people from Scotland, they're so happy they're Scots. And they're so glad they're not Irish and vice versa. You know, it's, it's, it, we understand that. And we do live in a nation that we have the right to vote and we do have a say in who's in office. And, and, and I'm not advocating we don't use our rights. 
where believers are even led to get involved in politics and make an impact or get on public school boards and make an impact and, and be Christ-honoring in all you do. But our singular focus is not about the country we are born into. Our singular focus is about the country we were born again into. It's about our heavenly citizenship and bringing others into the kingdom with you. See, when the church started fighting for political causes and to fix the world we live in apart from Christ, they lost the gospel. And we still haven't gotten it back. Because many are still spending more time trying to create outward conformity than they are spending time on a changed heart by repentance and faith. We should beg God to forgive us for taking matters in our own hands. For using our own methods instead of the methods laid out in Scripture to preach, teach, pray, live, and disciple to build his kingdom. And we know that. We know that because of the third point. It's about proclamation, isn't it? Look at our new identity in verse 9. What it, look at it produces. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, you see, the excellencies that Peter's talking about here are all the benefits that you have now that you're a citizen of heaven. Now that you've been called out of darkness, not into his light, but into his marvelous light, his incredible light, his outstanding light. You see, all that you were before is considered darkness. It's like Paul in Philippians 3. Remember when he compares his former life, his former identity? He compares it to a big pile of dung. I know you guys know what that means. And similar to us, ethnic pride, our U.S. citizenship, whatever it is that made you what you are, is also considered dung. It's darkness, and it is when you compare it to the marvelous light of Christ. God choosing you to be part of his family, his race, adopted and connected to other believers, to be part of his incredible royal priesthood where you have access to the Father through Jesus Christ the righteous, and you can come before his throne boldly for anything, at any place, at any time. And it's bringing you into that holy nation where there's no ethnic, no racial divides, and this is what's considered all of his marvelous light. So that now you're a people who are called by his own possession. See, he, he owns you and you're his subject. And all of what has happened to you is designed to tell someone. You, as a stranger and alien or foreigner in the United States, have been brought out of darkness to God's marvelous light so you can proclaim. It means tell and share with others how fantastic it is to be part of God's family his body, his building, his kingdom, his nation, his race, his priesthood. And how incredible it is to be owned and possessed by him. And, and it is incredible, isn't it? Tell that to your neighbor or your coworker next time they say, hey, how was your weekend? Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> Sunday. Sunday, I learned how amazing it is. That God called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I'm a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. And if you have just three minutes, I'd love to tell you all about it. Maybe you have a chance to say, 
you know, I live here, but I'm just visiting. This world's not my home. I'm just passing through. And I'm waiting for a better country, a homeland, a heavenly one that's eternal. You, you may not get to say all of what you want to say, but God will use your gifts, your personality, and the relationships that you've built with others for open doors and planting seeds. And as we proclaim his excellencies, he's the one who uses the planted seed to sprout and to grow and to build his kingdom. This goes right to our fourth point. As we're proclaiming his excellencies, being called out of darkness into light, it should affect how we live. So we have open doors to declare the gospel. Peter never separates proclamation from behavior. He, 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 never, he never separates belief and life. It's our behavior that opens the doors to make proclamation. Back to verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see, as an alien, as an exile, as a sojourner, your behavior matters because you belong to God. You're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The command is to stay away from or be at a distance from, which would at least indicate that you're not feeding them. Said you're fighting against them, which is indicated by the fact that you're at war with them. On Wednesday nights, we've been walking through the book of Romans, and all through Romans 6, we've been there for quite a while, is talking about the struggle with sin. And that we know that we can say no to sin, and we can say yes to righteousness because we've died with Christ, and we've risen with him, and these passions we are to abstain from, it can be anger and fits of rage and impurity and sexuality and covetousness and greed or, or all the things listed in the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. And the point simply is, our behavior should be noticeably different than the pagan culture around us. People that you rub shoulders with should know you behave differently. Your language should be different. Your conversations should be different. Your interests, your worldview, even what you do on weekends. They're going to think that you're strange simply because you wake up on Sunday and attend church. That alone, that alone sometimes is the single most powerful statement to the people around you. When, when you're up on a Sunday, getting off the church, and the people around you see it. He says, a stranger and alien possessed by God, you'll be obedient to your Lord and Master, and people will notice. But then Peter goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now what's so interesting is that even though we're sojourners and exiles or strangers and aliens, what's so interesting is that we're not to be separatists. There's a natural expectation for us to be among the Gentiles. Now, don't overthink this. I'm not talking about how you educate your kids. That's a different subject. But clearly, we are not to live in holy huddles, untouched by the pagan world around us. There's a movement today in different parts of evangelicalism where some are calling Christians to retreat from liberal states. 
and run from Illinois and run from California and run from New York and come to, to these places where we're building the kingdom. There's no room for that philosophy in the word of God. It's not in the apostolic record. When the apostles lined up and stayed in a holy huddle, what happened? God scattered them through persecution. Why? So the gospel would spread. We should be involved in the lives of those who don't know and need Christ. We're to proclaim his excellencies in those places, not run from them. And it's our conduct that opens the doors. Now, for some of you, this is more natural than others. It all really depends on your station in life. There was a time in, in my life with Deb and I as a, years ago where we are around a lot more unsaved people than we are today. Things have changed some. It's not nearly as frequent as it used to be. We wish it was sometimes. But in your normal, natural flow of life, you will interact with the unsaved people. You might have a hairdresser who's not a Christian. You might have a handyman or contractor who's not a Christian. Now, you want them to do good work. But you're there as a sojourner to represent the heavenly kingdom. I remember a church years ago who... They had all the approval. They had already paid for the architectural drawings. They were ready to break ground on adding a, some sort of gym and a fitness center on the church property. And literally at the last hour and during an elders meeting, somebody just brought up the question, how are we going to be salt and light and proclaim Christ's excellencies if our lives are only around believers? How are the unsaved people at the gym ever going to see our good conduct if we never interact with them? One voice after the approval, and by God's grace, they shut the project down. They, in essence, said, let's live among the Gentiles and not in a holy huddle. He'll exhort you and I that when we're among Gentiles or unsaved people, our conduct should be honorable and our deeds should be good. So when they speak against us, and they will, they, listen carefully, this is so important, they, the Gentiles, the unsaved we interact with, they may see our good deeds and they glorify God in the day of visitation. Now what on earth does that mean? Your conduct, your good deeds, you're respecting and obeying and following their silly laws, their way of doing things. You respectfully living as a stranger and an alien in their land, them seeing you yielding their, your rights out of respect for their interest, and you proclaiming his excellencies will be a means of grace for them to come to the king you represent. They will glorify God because of your life, how you handled yourself as an alien, a sojourner, was so attractive, they wanted what you had. One commentator says it so well. The good works of Christians, their beautiful and separated lives, are used of God as one of the means of bringing lost sinners to the Lord Jesus. When they are saved, God becomes the spiritual overseer of their souls. And then these sinners, saved by grace, will glorify him because of the Christ-like lives of certain Christians that cause them to want the Savior too. 
cause them to want the Savior too. And as you look at the landscape of the evangelical church, who still to this day are screaming ugly things at those who don't know Christ, and we're fighting battles against CRT and LGBTQ and transgenderism and don't say gay and who's the next justice and we're mocking our president. And we think, boy, we are really standing for Christ. So we live in our holy huddle. Then we launch internet grenades at pagans through our podcast. And the behavior is not honorable. It might be better as a sojourner and an alien to have an unsaved person over for a cup of coffee and just tell them about the marvelous kingdom you belong to. And they can too if they repent and believe. Beloved, you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Yes, a stranger, an alien, an exile, but you're part of the kingdom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's no reason to fret. There's no reason to worry. No reason to be remotely concerned over all that is taking place in the kingdom that's around us. He rules and reigns over every king, every nation. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The sovereign purposes and plans of God are never thwarted. So God help us promote his kingdom. And God help us to proclaim his excellencies. And God help us live lives in such a way that some follow into the kingdom to the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would, in fact, forgive the church for believing that our hope is in princes and rulers, in presidents and laws. Father, I ask if you, in fact, would forgive the church for giving up the gospel, for not seeing that building your kingdom is of the highest priority. I ask that you help us recalibrate. Help us truly live as aliens and sojourners in a, in a hostile land. Father, may our good behavior give us opportunities to declare your excellencies. And Father, how I pray that you would help us, Lord, to have the conversation to tell others about your glorious grace. And we ask you that you would build your kingdom through men and women becoming committed followers of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name.